Well, it has been a full morning already, um, but I believe that God's Word has more for us yet. Um, what a great thing for us to celebrate this. It's in a first Sunday as, as an autonomous church. Um, earlier this summer, we made the, the transition from uh, Harvest Bible Chapel to Redemption Church, name change. Um, now we're stepping out on our own. Uh, that's a big deal. That's a, that's a lot of transition. That's a lot of change. And, and yet at the same time, the, the major note that I want to sound this morning, uh, I've said it before, I'll say it again, is that through all of these changes, nothing has changed. No, nothing has changed. Um, and all of these, uh, the, the most important things aren't changing. The, the name change, the transition from being a, a, a campus under the watchful eye of Calgary to stepping out on our own, um, that's all exterior in, in many ways. Those who are old enough will certainly remember uh, what is often heralded as the greatest marketing debacle of all time. Uh, it was April 23rd, 1985. I was two and a half years old. Um, but Coca-Cola, the, the world's leading soft drink, was 99 years old. They had gone through numerous changes throughout the years. Uh, fountain pop only to bottles to cans through different designs, different branding, different colors, different ad campaigns. Uh, but as the 80s began, Pepsi-Cola was coming on the scene and growing rapidly in popularity. They were losing market share. And so in a desperate attempt to reestablish themselves, they, they launched what is now known as the great failure of the new Coke. They didn't just change the container this time. Um, they didn't just tweak the slogans or, or get a new spokesperson. Um, they changed that 99-year-old recipe. They wanted to create a marketing stir, and they certainly did, but not in the way they intended. Uh, sales of Coke skyrocketed as people went out and bought thousands of dollars worth of the original recipe to store in their basements. Um, the talk about Coke in the media was everywhere, pushed on by protest groups such as the, the Society for the Preservation of the Real Thing. That, that happened. Uh, and, and the old Coca-Cola drinkers of America, uh, hundreds of thousands of members between them. Pressure mounted so quickly and so passionately that three months later, uh, July of 1985, Coke announced the return to what is now called Coca-Cola Classic. And... and the message was clear. Change the packaging, change the, the, the marketing, change the jingle that you play, change the whatever famous person you have as the face of your product, but don't change the contents of that bottle. And so I want to assure you this morning, um, we're changing the packaging a little bit. We're, we're changing the way we say a few things, um, but by no means, under no circumstances, are we changing the recipe. We're not messing around with the contents Coke was foolish to depart from their almost 100-year uh, tradition, 100 years of their beloved product. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, that's a really silly example, right? Uh, it's a soft drink. Who cares? What difference does it make? They, they stood to lose market share. Um, they stood to lose a, a measly couple hundred million dollars. What, is, what does that matter? When we talk about the contents of our church and who we are, um, we're talking about something of infinitely greater significance. We're not 
talking about the loyalty and preferences of particular customers. We're not talking about traditions and, and the way we've always done things because that's the way we've always done things. Um, we're not looking at market share or popularity polls. When we look at the contents of who we are as a church, the, the core things that define us, we're talking about what is our mandate from God himself? What is it that Jesus Christ, God in flesh, has set out for us to do? That's not up for debate. We're not interested in asking if we should change that or deviate from that. So I want us to go back this morning and focus again on our mandate, our mission as a church. As we kind of take this step as an autonomous church, Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Um, That's where we're going to spend our time. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, go ahead and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab one for you. Uh, We want you to have God's Word in your hands. Uh, I have nothing of value for you. I'm sorry. I'm not that clever. Um, But God's Word uh, has all we need for life and godliness. And and I want you to be able to look down and see, yeah, this isn't His idea. These aren't His words. This This is God's words. Or to be able to see... I don't know what he's talking about because that's not what the Bible says. And to be able to come to me after and say, John, I think you're wrong there. I think you missed this. And, and you and I are both equally under the authority of God's word. Uh, that's what rules here. Um, what we find here at the end of Matthew, these last verses, is, is commonly called the Great Commission. Uh, this is our mandate. This is our mission as the church. This is who we are to be. Change the packaging all you want, but the, the content's right here must not change. Follow along as I read Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These are Jesus' marching orders to us, church. You'll notice uh, in the place of the four pillars, we, we now have what we call redemption culture, these two gray banners. Um, we're saying things a little different. And, and in the place of, we used to have worship, walk, work as kind of this definition of a healthy disciple. And we have this abide in Christ, grow in the church, reach the community. We're, we're tweaking the way we say some things. Um, but the mission statement, not one word has changed. Not one word. Uh, and that's intentional. Um, Lost people saved. Saved people matured. Mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. That's, that's our mission. That's what we're about. Uh, that's the mission from which we must not be moved. So I want to camp this morning in, in Matthew 28 and just unpack a little bit what it means um, to, to fulfill this mission. How do we go about that? What does that look like? Um, so we're going to start our, our first Sunday as an autonomous church affirming this again. The first part of that mission statement is lost people saved. It comes pretty clearly right out of verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. They are not disciples yet. Disciples need to be made. That's our job. And let's not miss the simple fact, the obvious truth on the front of it. We have a job to do. This is a call to action. As a church, we don't just exist for the purpose of existing. Um, we don't just get together for the sake of getting together. Uh, we, we are not to be a, a holy huddle just 
kind of holding together in the basement, waiting for Jesus to come back and fix this mess. No, we have, we've been sent on a mission. We have a job to do. And Jesus says, go. It's a command. It's a, it's a call to action. Um, it's funny, I, I, there's a lot of discussion around that little two-letter word, go. Um, some people hang everything on the word go. Uh, this is a call to move. It's a call to get up and go. Usually this is your, your missionary appeal, right? Go to all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the earth. Pick up your family, pack up the kids, get on the plane, move to the furthest corners of the earth and share the gospel. Other people seem to be bent on, uh, on kind of skipping over the go. Make disciples. And they rightly point out the word there, go, is a participle. It's not the main verb. It's a descriptive word about the main command. And the main command is make disciples. And so they would say this should be translated as you are going. Make disciples. This is about everyday life. This is about just coming and going in your own community and, and going about your life making disciples. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why you would try to make a distinction and split those two apart. Yes, it's a participle. It's a descriptive word. The main command is go and make disciples, but it's all wrapped together. If we're going to make disciples of all nations, then some of us are going to have to get up and go. Some of us are going to have to move to, to those unreached people groups who have not heard of Christ. New frontiers. To this day, there are 7,080 distinct people groups in our world, representing about 3 billion people who have less than 2% of believing Christians. Less than 2%. It's really hard for less than 2% to affect the population. They need help. They need people to come in from the outside and proclaim the gospel. Are we willing to do that? But we also have to look at our day-to-day life. And here we are where God has planted us. Are we willing to share the gospel here? You go to the grocery store, to the coffee shop. There are unbelievers all around us who need to hear the gospel. And so whether you're going to pick up and move to the Tajik people as an example of Afghanistan, 0.01% Christian on 10 million people. Or if you're going to get up and walk across the street or across the lawn to your neighbor. Uh, Our job, our mandate is to be making disciples. That's significant. Um, There are a lot of good things that could be done in this world. There are. There are are people all over this world without food, without clean water, without suitable housing and clothing. We have neighbors and towns around us that, that could use better social programs, better care for the elderly, better green spaces, help for the homeless, uh, help for the addicts and the single moms. Those are great things. Those are genuinely good things. And we talked about it at our, our men's meeting last, uh, last week. The, 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 the common grace of God ought to inform us as believers and give us a passion to love people and to fill those needs. But when it comes right down to it, making this world a better place is not our mission. That's not our goal. Our mission given to us by Jesus himself is not solve world hunger. It's make disciples, lost people saved. And and we'll take flack for that. There are people 
I know I could give you names who do not come to our church because I've said things like this. How can you say that? How can you, how can you talk that way about people who are starving to death? Well, I, hear me, that's a tragedy. And we ought to do things. We ought to help people. What I'm saying is that's not our mission as a church. And I think we get our priorities backwards because we see the physical so much easier than we see the spiritual. People without food, as an example, is a tragic thing. Our hearts ought to break over that. Malnutrition affects an estimated 815 million people around the world. It causes pain. It causes diseases. It causes suffering. It affects elderly and children alike. It ultimately causes the death of 9 million people a year. That, that ought to break our hearts. But infinitely sadder is the tragedy that, that somewhere between 5 and 6.5 and billion people today do not hope in Christ as their Savior. And that doesn't just cause 20, 30, 50 years of, of suffering, but an eternity under the wrath of God. That is far more significant. Now, again, helping solve some of these world problems, that's a, that's a good thing. Those have value in and of themselves. It, it might even be a tool that we can use toward our mission of, of making disciples. But trying to solve those issues can never replace our mission as a church. Not because we don't love those people, but because we do. Because we care about so much more than what the next few years of their life have in store, but for eternity. The Christian or the, the church that, that hands out food and, and clean water and, and clothes to the needy without clearly, boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ as their central mission, it's like a man walking into a hospital filled with people dying of some horrible disease and he holds in one hand the pill that will cure them all immediately and he decides instead just to hand out band-aids, pat people and say, get well soon, right? I mean, solving world hunger and withholding the gospel would be cruel, would be a horrible thing to do. We've been given the gospel of salvation, the only remedy, the only hope for the, for the lost souls of this world. An escape from eternal damnation and the wrath of God and, and welcoming into the favor of God and an eternity under His blessing. We, we can't let that take a back seat, not for one instant. So our mission is clear. Make disciples. We can't lose sight of that. Our primary goal is lost people saved. And, and that happens as we live out what we've been talking about the last two weeks. We've been working through this, this paradigm here. Abide in Christ, grow in the church, reach the community. We need to be proclaiming the gospel clearly, boldly. We need to be building relationships and networks around us that are intentionally moving towards sharing the gospel. We exist to see lost people saved. But notice the words of Jesus. It doesn't stop there. We're commissioned also to see saved people matured. Jesus doesn't say, go and make converts. He doesn't say, go and make professors, people that profess Jesus with their mouth. He says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Today we have different schools 
And, and for better or for worse, we, we judge people according to what school they went to. Um, we say, oh, that, that lawyer, he went to Harvard Law School. Or this doctor, he, he went to uh, the Mayo Clinic. Uh, Trevor at, at Redemption Calgary, uh, he went to the Master's Seminary in California. Uh, I went to Southern Seminary in Louisville. And there's this endless running joke between us of who got the better education. And I mean, clearly I win. But... Um, but that's how we define ourselves, right? But in, in this day, uh, you didn't go to a school, you, you went to a rabbi. You went to a particular teacher and you became their disciple. Paul talks about how he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. That was a well-known teacher, a rabbi that he followed around and learned under. And a common phrase was, was that the, the disciple ought to be covered in the dust of the rabbi because everywhere the rabbi went, the disciple was right behind him, learning to, to think and talk and live like his teacher. When Jesus called his disciples, he didn't just say, believe in me, though that's obviously important. He said, follow me. Come, follow me. It was a very practical call to an active belief, an active faith. Walk behind me. Learn from me. Learn to to speak as I speak. Learn to think as I think. Learn to do as I do. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's a a life-encompassing following. And that's the same idea of baptism. Baptism is this symbol of being fully immersed, of giving your life. Look at at Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this going down into the water. He's saying that that old me that lived for for sin and for self, he's gone now. He's dead. He's been crucified with Christ and buried. And that coming up out of the water, clean. It's this this new life with Christ. I've been resurrected. There's this new me. The old is gone. The new has come. I'm alive in Christ and Christ lives in me. And, And Paul says, raised to walk in newness of life. Created new, made new in order to walk in, to, to live out this new life, to follow Jesus, to, to grow in Him. We so often present Christianity as nothing more than a decision, uh, nothing more than just a, a, a mental assent. Just believe, and, and, and we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone. Don't get me wrong, but that faith ought to overflow into a life of Action, a life of actually following Christ. So our job as a church is to make disciples. And I would say this is something that, that we as the North American church have, have often done poorly. We, we, we share the gospel and, and somebody gets saved and, and we're, we're just not quite sure what to do. We just kind of, good for you. Good job believing. Here's, here's a Bible. See you Sunday. Right? And, and like, what else do you want? And, and basically, it's, it's like parents giving birth to a child and, and putting a four-gallon jug of milk in the crib and saying, good luck then. Um, see ya. It doesn't work very well. 
Now, some of those babies, by, by God's grace and the, and the work of the Holy Spirit, they, they figure out how to get the lid off and how to, how to drink, and they, and they grow and they mature and they become strong. But a lot of them, because of our failure as a church in discipleship, they, they stay malnourished and, and weak. They, they fail to really grow up as believers. And it's sad. Our mission as the church doesn't end with people making a profession of faith. We're making disciples. We're about people actually following Jesus and growing in Him and maturing in Him. We don't want to just see people cross the starting line, as it were, into salvation, into faith, but to help them actually run the race, actually pursue Christ, actually come to maturity. Paul talks about this with the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3. He says to them, But I, brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready. You say, I came to, to teach you. I came with steaks on the plate, and you, you, guys, are, you guys are still on milk. You're not, you haven't grown. And so to the Colossians, he says, in, in Colossians 1.28, he says, him, that's, that's Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's how we mature in Christ, is the, the proclamation of the gospel. It's teaching about Christ. It's growing in Him. And that, that's our goal as a church, to warn and to teach and to train everyone so that everyone might be one day presented before Christ mature, strong in the faith, grown up. So I ask, if, if Paul were to show up Sunday morning, or, or to maybe just pop into one of our small groups, what would he say? Would he, would he walk in and sit down and say, guys, what are you doing? What's with all the crying and the pablum? Why, why, the, why the baby talk here? Or, or, would he, or would he say, I see that you're growing. In your faith, you're, you're grappling with the truths of God's Word and you're, and you're growing in maturity and, and stability. You're beginning to, to live out that holy life that Christ requires of us. Now, now we need to be fair. Um, babies act like babies. Ch- children act like children. That's, that's okay, right? I, I don't expect Elijah, my six-year-old, to, to get up in the morning uh, and, and cook bacon and eggs for the whole family. It's not going to happen. But you know what? He can pour himself a bowl of Cheerios. In fact, this morning he poured himself two bowls of Cheerios right up to the top, and we threw most of it out. Um, but if he keeps doing that, if he can keep feeding himself Cheerios, he's going to grow. He's going to continue to mature. And by the time he's 10 or 12, bacon and eggs might be on the menu. And by the time he's 18 and ready to move out, he better start getting this figured out. He be better be able to make for himself a, a reasonably healthy meal and, 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 and maybe even learn how to feed a family. Growth by its very nature is a process. No, nobody starts at the end. You, you begin at the beginning. You start where you are. The question isn't, are you there now? The question is, what's your trajectory? Are you growing? You look back a year ago, Do you see God's grace working in you? Do you see maturity and faith there that wasn't there before? When you look ahead a year or five years from now, where are you going to be? If you keep going on this trajectory, where will you end up? Will you have read the Bible five more times five years from now, or will you have finally made it through Ephesians? We ought to be growing. 
And that takes effort. The Bible makes no bones about that. Train yourselves for godliness. That's absolutely the work of the Holy Spirit in us and God by His grace. But that doesn't mean we are not active participants. And then what about the people around you? Are we, as a church, fostering that in one another? Are we, as, as Hebrews 10 requires of us, are we stirring up one another toward love and good deeds? Pushing each other on. Encouraging one another. Building each other up. Our mission as a church is to see lost people saved and saved people matured. And, and that, that's ourselves and that's those around us. Are we actually growing in the faith? Lost people saved, saved people matured, and then mature people multiply. That's, that's verse 20. Jesus says that we ought to be teaching them, teaching those disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. Now notice this is not just head knowledge, right? This isn't just... You know, read through Grudem's systematic theology. Um, we're talking about life transformation. It's observing, it's obeying all that Christ has commanded. And yeah, he sets the bar that high. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really hard, high bar. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, we have to just stop right there and, and admit, nobody ever arrives, right? We never get to that point of saying, I've made it. I've done what God calls me to do. Um, First Peter says, "Be the, the Lord calls us to be holy as I am holy. Um, so there's, a, there's the mark. We're, we're not going to get there. But we ought to be growing. We ought to be moving in that direction until the day we die. Uh, and that doesn't mean there are not significant landmarks, that there aren't levels of holiness that, that matter as we grow in maturity. And... and and there ought to be certain people that we can look to in the church and say, that, that person is mature. I can see their faith. I can see their life. There's, there's maturity there. There's evidence of it. Now, not perfect, but growing in Christ and, and consistent in Christ-like character. That's what we're talking about as we, as we talk about what it means to be an elder in the church. Those, those lists of, of qualifications that Paul gives, um, it's about Christ-like character. Above reproach, the, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Um, being an elder in the church is primarily about character. There, there's, there's one item. An elder in the church is to be able to teach. But all of the rest are, are, are just what Christian character ought to look like. And so as we're proclaiming the gospel together and people are getting saved and, and discipled and are growing, um, we want to see more people reaching maturity. We want to see people coming to that point where we can look into their lives and say, this is a mature believer. They're not just consuming from the church, needy and hungry. They're, they're feeding themselves and they're beginning to feed others. They're serving in the church. They're, they're giving of their time and their resources. Ephesians 4.11 it says, He, Jesus, gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, and we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the job of the evangelist and the shepherds, which is just another word for pastor, and the teachers, I actually think those are meant as a combo, the shepherd teachers, their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
the ministry of the church is it's not my job. You might call me a minister and I might just turn the tables right back. We're all ministers in the church, or we ought to be. My job is to build up and train and equip all of us that we might all be involved in the ministry of the church. That we might all attain to the unity of the faith and maturity in Christ. You are called to be a minister in the church. You're called to follow Christ into maturity. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul instructs Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's this handing down of this job, of the faith. It's easy for pastors to get a big ego. And, and like anybody else, I want to be needed. I, I want to be depended on. It's so tempting to lead you to believe and to, and to tell myself that I'm somehow special, that I have some spiritual power, that my education gives me some position, that, that I'm not replaceable. And it's just not the case. There are plenty of examples of pastors who have built massive pyramids with themselves unmovably fixed at the top. That's not what the church is meant to be. That's not what healthy Christian community looks like. We believe in the plurality of eldership. Uh, Right now, I am an elder in this church alongside Mike and the other men in Calgary, and they have the same position that I have. I have the privilege of teaching on a regular basis. Trevor has the privilege of teaching on a regular basis in Calgary, um, but but he he gets one vote, as it were, among the elders. Church is meant to be led by the elders. And that takes away that that pinnacle at the top, that that ego-driven, or it ought to. The church is a body. We're, We're together in this, each part playing its role. And we as elders ought to recognize we're called under shepherds to the good shepherd. Christ is at the top. It all points to Jesus. He's the head of the church. He's our our lead pastor. That's why we do small groups. It creates space, not only for young believers to to learn and grow and to to walk behind some older believers and, and see into their lives, but also for older believers and mature believers to have an opportunity to be teaching and training and handing down their understanding of the faith and the wisdom that they've gained in Christ over the years. Mature believers using their, using their gifts. So as lost people are being saved and saved people are being matured and mature people are being multiplied and it's all pointing back to Christ. That's, that's our mission. That's how we judge success. Uh, not by how many bums in the seats, not by how many dollars in the account or, or any of that, but how many lives are being changed. We talk about church growth I think a fair bit. Maybe that's a small church thing, a church plant thing. We want to see our church grow. What do we mean by that? Because sometimes that means we want to see our church, the people here, growing. And yeah, we want to see more people added. We want to see lost people saved. And we want to see them grow. And it would be great to see this building busting at the seams and, and moving to another building because more people are coming to trust in Christ and grow in grace and mature That's the mission of the church. So where are you at? 
How does your life fit in with this mission? Where do you sit on that continuum between, between infant believer and mature in Christ? What, what trajectory are you on? And, and how are we working together as the church to be growing the church, to be building the church? And, and I hope we get that right. It's not as though I'm an individual over here and I go to that church. And so I ought to give a little bit of time and give some of my money and, and give to that church. No, we are the church, right? Like the, the hand doesn't donate a certain amount of hours to the body. It is the body. The, the eyes don't say, well, I can show up two Sundays a month. No, no it is the body. We're together in this. We are the church. We are the parts of the body. And so I'm not telling you, hey, come and join in and, and maybe pitch in 10% toward our mission. I'm saying, church, this is our mission. This is your mission as an individual, as part of the church. This is our mission together. This is what we're about. Are we proclaiming the gospel? Are we faithful to, to be sharing our faith, to see lost people saved? Are we growing more and more in maturity year upon year? Are we we using the the gifts that God has given us to pour into others and and disciple others? Are you you engaged in the the ministry of the church, in in, in men at war, and women of excellence, and and prayer meetings, and Sunday morning services? All of that is, is carefully designed to give us opportunity to be growing and maturing. We don't, we don't do any of these things just because we've always done them. It's on purpose. We're trying, to, we're trying to build the church. We need to learn to, to grow. Are you using your gifts and abilities? Are you serving? Um, that's our mission. Lost people saved, saved people matured, mature people multiplied, and then finally, all to the glory of God. That's the umbrella over all of it. Really, that's our goal, singular goal. These other things is how we accomplish that goal. It's all about the glory of God. That's why we do it. And there's a hierarchy here. God is glorified in Christ, and Christ is glorified in the church. That's Ephesians 3.21, to Him, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So the church glorifies God in glorifying Christ. And and as Christ gives this great commission to the church, he, He bookends it with His glory. Verse 18, He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. And then verse 20, He says, Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Why does He do that? Well, He does it because you're, you're absolutely fooling yourself if you read through these verses and are not completely overwhelmed. This, this ought to leave us just knocked down. Just, just recap. Go and make disciples? You can't do that. You can't change a heart of stone. You can't give spiritual life where there previously was only spiritual death. Go to all nations, really? You have no authority to do that. Really? Really? Go to the Buddhists and tell them they're all wrong. Go to the Muslims and tell them they're all wrong. Go to the atheists and tell them they're all wrong. All of you need to repent and and come with me. You have no authority to do that. Teaching them to obey all I have commanded, that's a high bar. 
We can't even get there, never mind get other people there. This mission that we've been given is way out beyond us. And that's the point. It's exactly the point. It could only be rooted in absolute authority. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Don't, don't go tell people anything on your own authority. Our message is, Jesus has said, he has all authority. That will only be accomplished by his divine presence and empowering. It starts and ends with him. And there's some neat stuff going on in, in verse 20. I'd love to, to play around with this a little bit more. But, but if you notice, just quickly, the command in, in verse 20 is, Behold, look, pay attention, see this. Behold, I am with you. And the I am there is emphatic. It's ego eimi, which is the Greek equivalent to the Yahweh. When Moses says, Lord, tell me who who." are you? What is your name? So I can tell the Israelites who you are. He's saying, God, help me. Empower me. I can't do this on my own. And, and God says, I am the I am. And now Jesus is saying, I am with you. And if you go back well, to the beginning of the book, here in the last words, he says, behold, I am with you. The final words that Matthew leaves with his readers. But if you go back to chapter 1, the very introduction to who Jesus is. Matthew 1, 23. Behold, there it is again. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. You think Matthew's trying to make a point? I think he's trying to get something across here? This Jesus, he's, he's coming. He's going to be born as a child who is God with us. Jesus on his exit says, I will be with you. I'm not going anywhere. Our salvation is accomplished by God with us. Our, our mission is only accomplished by God with us. That's, that's our only hope. It's all about his work in us and through us. It's all about his authority, his power, and then it's all about his glory. Who looks great? When this pathetic little gathering of misfits changes the world. We, we know the disciples didn't do it. Did you meet those guys? Have you read the Gospels? They were, they were bumbling through trying to figure it out. And God used them in radical ways. And it's pretty obvious that it was God that did it. So we want to engage this mission with all of our might. We want to do it to our utmost. We want to give our lives to this mission. We want to take hold of this as a church with, with both hands, saying this is what Christ has called us to do and we're going to do it. At the same time, recognizing it's all about His glory and this is only going to happen in His miraculous power through us. That's our only hope. That's why next week we're going to, we're going to start and we're just going to go through these uh, this elements of the redemption culture, as we call it. And, and, and number one is fervent prayer, expectant and dependent. That, that's where we start, crying out to God. Um, we're going to wrap that up, and we're going to go into the book of Exodus for a while and just kind of spend some time learning about who God is as Savior and how He rescues His people, how He builds His people. 